What is your father's name? My father? Do you really want to know? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowlane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 77 this time around, which is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has in store for us. We spent practically the entire month of May thinking about and watching noir. So I got really intrigued by this idea of post-revenge, what happens, what happens to everyone involved. And that led me to a title that we saw a couple of years ago and completely blew us away. And that is Durat, or Dry Season, from 2006, written and directed by Mohamed Saleh Haroun, with Ali Bacha Barkai, Yusuf Dajoro, and Aziza Hussain. Young Atim is sent by his grandfather to kill the man who murdered his own father, whom Atim never knew. Before we get into the film, I wanted to provide just a bit of context. The film takes place in Chad, and we are following the aftermath of the first Chadian Civil War, which lasted from 1965 to 1979, and the second Chadian Civil War was taking place during filming. It started in 2005 and ended in 2010. Can you really say, though, at any point in the last four, five decades that it actually has ended definitively? It certainly doesn't seem like it. It's been an incredibly precarious situation for decades. This was my first glimpse of Chad. And in this film, we get both rural Chad, in the scenes in Abeche, which is also where the director is from, and in the capital city, in Jamena. And by the way, Abeche is in the extreme east of the country, and the capital is in the extreme west. That beautiful long shot of his village that we get in the very opening is a crucial piece to me. It's something that Haroon could have just easily left out, I'm glad he didn't, and it could seem perfunctory at first glance, working almost like just an establishing shot. It's not employed that way, it doesn't come first, it's inserted as an edit. And because he uses it that way, it makes the landscape look so ancient, and it's easy to envision this as the cradle of civilization, thereby subtly underscoring just how timeless the themes of this film actually are. We see all of these sand-colored houses, and it makes those pops of vivid color really stand out. And we see that first in the guise of the grandfather, a blind man. He's calling for Atim as we scan through this village. We see the vivid colors of his dress and of his mat, and soon we see a tall young man coming towards him. He's calling for him because he wants them to listen together to the news report on the findings of the Truth and Justice Committee as far as the fate of the war criminals from this civil war, and they receive amnesty, as it turns out, which is clearly disappointing to Atim. He cannot understand how this could happen. So much for truth and justice, in quotes. And this is after we get the news from the commission that almost feels like them trying to explain themselves. 
We dealt with 200 war criminals. We talked to 609 eyewitnesses. And through all of this atrocity, they wanted to end the cycle of war, thereby granting this amnesty. And this is clearly more than the grandfather can bear because it's turned off mid-word. And now this Truth and Justice Commission has no more to say in the matter. Well, it's not just more than the grandfather can stand. Unrest and protest occur literally immediately, and it's punctuated by automatic weapon fire. So we are left to wonder from which side that comes, the protesters or someone quelling the uprising. Because as often happens with Haroon, crucial events take place off screen and you are left to interpret the sound. One thing that I really appreciate about Haroon's approach to this and to the film that will also be my recommendation, as it turns out, is that they both avoid political entanglement and making a melodramatic pageant of the population's suffering. It would be easy for a less skilled storyteller to fall back on one or both of these elements to manufacture some emotional response in the audience. But what Haroon does is more subtle and sticks with me longer than any of that cheaper manipulation. For example, the lost shoes that are left behind here are easily as haunting an image as any scene that he could have put in of citizens being rounded up, for example. Because in the world of Atim and his grandfather, they are inside this dwelling. They're not a part so much of what's going on in the village, and they're so isolated. And to me, it also signified that there was no one to guide them. So while these protesters or possibly soldiers might be running away or to something, they are stuck in one place. They're not just idle, though. A team's grandfather gives him a mission. And in particular, he gives him a gun, his father's gun, his birthright. And he sends him on this mission in search of Nasara, who is the man specifically who killed his son and Atim's father. We are given the very definite impression that Nasara is a dangerous man. He is almost larger than life, the way they convey the image of him in this introductory section. What does Atim's grandfather's blindness indicate to you here? I guess in the most literal sense that he has one goal and doesn't have the visual sense to see how either foolhardy or also deadly dangerous this could be. Because to me, Atim is nothing more than a boy. He has that young person's mustache after all. The concept of the child soldier, though, is so ingrained at this point in the culture that I don't know that we can look at it that way anymore from a Western perspective. It's just two different worlds. Blindness as a symbol, of course, obviously justice comes to mind, but is that too clumsy a symbol for someone who's usually more nuanced the way Haroon is? To me, I also thought of the biblical implications as well, especially when you take it in the context of this mission that Atim is sent on, and that his grandfather says he's going to go into the desert and pray for him. Also, though, I think of that as a possible real outcome from the first civil war. That immediately came to mind, too, because we obviously see people throughout the film that are physically damaged in some way. It has been decades, and legions of people that have participated, so it has to be extremely commonplace to see a wound like that, possible amputation. Everyone is scarred by this event in some way or another, and quite a large number of them, obviously physically. I do agree with you, though. I tend to think of it as indicative of being unable to see the consequences of perpetuating this cycle of violence. Handing it down as a birthright, locking the next generation into the same destructive behavior, blind to the damage that it's done to the country, to the folly of insisting that it continues. To give you a sense of just one period, 
during the decades of dictatorship and atrocities visited upon the citizens during the rise to power of Hussein Habri, which, by the way, this director also made a documentary about. He created a secret police force known as the Documentation and Security Directorate, and opponents of the regime were tortured, detained, executed. Methods of torture included burning the body of the detainee with incandescent objects, spraying gas into their eyes, ears, and noses, forced swallowing of water, and forcing the mouths of detainees around the exhaust pipes of running cars. So I'm ready to believe that anything is possible. So with mission in hand, Atim sets off. He's wearing that camo jacket, which I assume to be his father's, and a military-style duffel bag. But right away, I think of these details again. It's just too hot to walk in that jacket, so he takes it off and puts it in his duffel. Another nice touch from Haroon. Atim is not a soldier. Age notwithstanding, culture notwithstanding, he is not cut out for this life. And he hitches a ride, and the car picks up an actual soldier whom he engages in a staring contest with until the soldier puts his gun in Atim's face, and he eventually relents. Now, as Atim goes out into the world and he has more of these interactions, we do become aware that these are non-professional actors. Did that affect your experience one way or the other? Oh, not at all. It feels in the moment, it feels as if it is actually happening, especially with that soldier who is our sense of people in power with no checks and balances. This man would pull a gun on a young boy just for looking at him in the presence of a religious man, a mother, and her child, clearly with no moral compass, it seems like. These are people who are in power who can do whatever they want. Well, you know I'm a huge fan of the non-professional. Non-professionals in the hands of a skilled and sensitive director, I think, are capable of great things and have made some of my favorite cinematic art. Plus, I love the way Haroon talks about it. He boils it down to the thing that I think I intuitively respond to the most. They do not lie. And you know I love what he says about his part in that transaction, whether it's working with non-professionals, having no crew, no processing facilities, all these circumstances that you encounter when trying to make a film in Chad. If you have an egg and two tomatoes, do not complain. Try to make the best menu you can. And I certainly never felt at any moment that I was missing out on some sort of emotional response from these people. They convey clearly and deeply what it is that they are feeling and doing. In a voiceover here, we learn that the man that killed his father was never punished, lives free. And that he never knew his father, and Atim's name translates to orphan. And it touches on a theme that comes up more than once in Haroon's work. Atim is his allegory for Chad, I think, and much of Africa, being fatherless as well. It's really something that we in the West take for granted, I think. The faith in the presence of that feeling, that guiding hand, that security, a definite sense of lineage. Haroon says that that feeling is parallel to lacking God, which I think is the most truly bereft feeling a person might have. That is the depth of feeling that drives a team's actions. I also really like this intermittent voiceover because we hear Atim, we don't hear from him quite a lot in this film. There's very little dialogue just in general. And so he takes this opportunity to often speak more eloquently than his young man persona will allow in many of the circumstances that come up. Upon his arrival in town, he is beaten by two more men in uniform until someone steps in on his behalf. A team is resistant, though, to any show of friendship, help, 
brotherhood. His inexperience with people makes him vulnerable to people of all sorts, either these soldiers or Musa who comes to his aid, that recruits him into a life of petty crime, though I suppose in this climate he could have fallen in with a much worse element. Stealing fluorescent bulbs doesn't seem too dangerous a racket. And back to those soldiers who beat him up, I wasn't sure if they were actually soldiers or even people who were just paid to be there and took the opportunity to use some force. And I was also not sure of Musa's motives. It seems odd to me as a person in this place and time to immediately trust a stranger who says, yeah, come with me. I'll take you to my house. You can stay there. Because how often does that work out? We see the naive youngster coming to town, falling under the sway. It's in everything from Pinocchio on down. And though he is from a rural village, there is still unrest that's happening there. He's still aware of his surroundings. And so I wasn't sure if he was so single-minded that this mission that can't have just come up the day before with his grandfather, I'm sure this has been instilled in him to some degree, if he is so resistant to anything that might take him away from that single path. He does go with him. He meets Musa's aunt, who says that he's always bringing people around. Now, Atim is still on this mission, so he is walking around the town asking for what look to be directions, and he gets pointed to the Boulangerie Nassara. I do love that handmade sign and the painted baguette. However, this is not cause for celebration. He's essentially staking out the location. He's walking back and forth, almost like a caged tiger, and at last Nassara comes out. Well, he doesn't actually have to wait long to get a glimpse of him. He's in this striking blue garment as he is going to prayers. And I think it's a wonderful touch that Harun has made him a baker. It's a significant element of his atonement, I feel like. He could have made him any profession, but baker seems very significant. Bread is the most vital, basic, and universal of all foodstuffs. And there's an element of Christ-like service built into that image, at least for Western audiences. A team follows him now, quite obviously. Again. Not a soldier, not someone who is very stealthy. And this has to be a man who is used to being hunted. For the average moviegoer, it's a Western archetype. A young gunslinger comes to town to avenge a wrong committed by the old outlaw. Seeing it presented this way, though, we have to confront the fact that that is a much more ancient impulse. I also like the touch of making him the baker because it is clearly a signal of the leftover colonialism. So many emotions wrapped up into the fact that this man is making baguettes so far removed from France. We see that initial foray into that petty crime that you had mentioned, but he is soon back at the watch. And we see that continued atonement that Nasara is making. A crowd of small children waits outside these blue doors, and they get their daily bread, their half-loaf. Now, Nasara holds one out for Atim. He takes a bite and in that childish manner spits it out. He makes a move to hand it back, but then drops it before Nasara can pick it up. If the subject weren't so grave, it's a moment straight out of Step Brothers. I can see Will Ferrell doing this to John C. Riley. This is one of my favorite moments in the film, though. Nasara is puzzled by this. He has yet to figure out this young man. But Nassara's response is only humility. It's a humility learned through service, and his reaction is so subtle, but conveys so much. You mentioned the dialogue is sparse, and so you know I love that if you listen to this show very much. 
Some of that may be the byproduct of working with non-professionals, but I think it's also innately part of Haroon's rhythm. He embraces film first as a visual medium. It almost seems like a silly and obvious thing to say, movies are visual, but there are clearly filmmakers that have yet to learn that lesson, it seems, and only when you take that lesson to heart can you begin to develop the kind of economy with images that Haroon has. I love his editing rhythm so much. And again, Atim is a young man. He doesn't have the capability to speak in soliloquy, for example. And he seemed to communicate with his grandfather largely through touch or proximity. And we will also learn relatively soon that Nasara has his own impairment. So that sparse dialogue always seems to serve its purpose. Atim is still on this straight and narrow, even as Musa is selling those stolen bulbs, Atim won't take the money, which makes Musa get angry. To me, this feels like it specifically addresses the thing you said earlier, that Atim is fixed on one goal, and he's not going to be sidetracked by a quick buck. One of the things we learn that he holds as a truism is that you can only get rid of your shadow once you complete your mission. Haroon is speaking directly to his countrymen and women here, I feel. It can't be anything else. And they are working and living under a long shadow. It's so hard to grasp. We have no basis for comparison with our Civil War so long ago. Chad was liberated in 1960, and, like you said, the Civil War started five years later. And it's been plagued with violence and instability for the majority of the years since then. We cannot fathom that in our time. It's the next day, and those boys are back waiting for that daily bread. This time, Nasara gets in his face. They're circling each other, and we see Nasara in his bread-making clothes. Nasara has a very definite gravity. He's an intimidating man, don't you feel like? Even with what we already know about him, which he doesn't know that we know, even with this impairment that we're about to see, he's terrifying to me. Watching him distribute bread is terrifying. Well, he speaks with a device against his throat with mechanical assistance because someone tried to slit that throat in his sleep and he survived that. It's a voice box assist, an electronic larynx. And actually, one of my great uncles had one of those many years ago as well. And he wants to know, just what does Atim want? It is not charity. He makes sure and specifically says that. So his mission is something else. The bakery business is a pretty hot concern because a mobile van pulls up, also selling baguettes. And they even have a loudspeaker. And to that, I think Nasara assumes maybe this young man wants work, and he tells them that if that is the case, come back tomorrow. Which he does. A team shows up for work the next day, gun in hand, and Nasara invites his would-be assassin into his home. So clearly, Atim is incredibly single-minded, but he hasn't pulled the trigger yet, and he's had many opportunities. Right away, it's potentially already too complicated to salvage this mission. We meet Aisha, Nasara's wife, early on here, and she is pregnant. This complicates matters. If Atim kills Nasara, he is affecting an innocent wife and child, and it's a level of ruthlessness that I do not think he is cut out for. It's still more of the surly angle right now, because even though he's invited in, even though he's invited to the mat, Atim won't sit next to Nasara. I love that detail of him slumping behind him as he watches this very young, very pregnant wife come out who has to put on her headscarf first when she realizes that there's company. So much beautiful color associated with this character. She obviously is bringing life to this place. And now Atim becomes sort of a reluctant apprentice baker. 
He refuses to eat, but they're inside the bakery cutting portions of the dough. This takes me right back to my pizza shuttle days. There was a time that I could have told you exactly how much 9 ounces of dough was just by feel in a split second. Making bread does require love and attention, much like Nasara says. Without those things, the bread is no good. It's a great thing to cook for people on any level. And significantly, from my experience, I can vouch for this, you come to love the people you cook with as well, not just the people that you cook for. It's a hard job, and being in a kitchen with someone develops a very specific, and in some cases, lifelong bond. And now I want a baguette. I think beyond the colonialism, it's important that that is what they're making. At least that was my idea, because it's a bread that involves some of the fewer number of ingredients. And yet, is still an art form. Absolutely. Nasara offers to make a great baker out of Atim. Atim finally takes food that is offered to him, but only after having worked for it. And here for the first time, Nasara asks him about his origins and how he received his scarification. Just before that, though, while they're drinking tea, Atim smiles at Aisha, and Nasara notices and deliberately spills tea on him. It's a moment of gentle humor, I feel like, in a film that doesn't have very much of that. It's very efficient, the way that Haroon deploys this moment. We are still clearly in a master and apprentice relationship here, but it feels like it's the first move toward familial. I will say it didn't feel that gentle to me. Maybe I was just thinking of what comes later. You're just not used to how people treat each other in kitchens, I guess. I guess not. Nasara also invites him to pray, and Atim refuses. To which Nasara responds, he was like that before. Before what? Before is a very freighted word for both of these men. Which do you think stings Atim more? Nasara seeing him as a younger version of himself, or the idea that Nasara thinks he can achieve redemption? I think it's definitely more of the latter, and then also it seems like he's immediately kicking against the concept that this person wants to be my father. I also finally noted more at this point, I was really paying attention to that scarf that Nasara winds around his neck. Because he's in this inferno of a kitchen, but where's this thing that's very heavy? And I wanted to know more, and I'm assuming Atim did as well. Is it a measure of vanity? Is it that he wants no one to see this wound? Or is it out of consideration to people? Because I don't think you want to go to the baker who has this ragged gash across his throat. He obviously still has things that he is working through. His anger is one of them. Was vanity another? He was clearly a very different person years before. Was that also one of his more cardinal sins? But clearly what we choose to wear makes a difference. We see that when Atim is changing his clothes, always moving the gun from one place to another. So the scarf is Nasara's accessory and the gun is Atim's? Well, another of Atim's accessories is his phone, which, in a fit of this anger, Nasara smashes because it is interfering with the day's work. It works on two levels for me. It indicates the generational difference for one thing, and also the fact that Nasara has not mastered his emotions the way he might like to so far. He offers to pay for the phone, which Atim, of course, refuses. And in this exchange, Nasara acknowledges his temper, his failings, and more importantly, his history. I thought it was important as well that these calls that he's getting while they're packing up the bread are from his friend Musa. And I wondered if Nasara just simply did not want him to have 
outside friends as he was trying to bring him into this fold. Again, the ghost of the old Nasara creeping in. He knows that isolation is the quickest way to break someone to a new system. He clearly isn't as pious as he might seem at first glance. He is definitely in conflict with his competing bakery. And soon here, in another moment, Nasara discovers Atim and Aisha mocking him and he whips her, another event that takes place off screen. So how do you leave that life behind? How do you trust? How do you serve? Clearly violence is still close to the surface. In this exchange after the phone, he doesn't specify to Atim what his past transgressions are, but I don't think it's necessary. In my estimation right here, Nasara knows, or at least suspects from very early on, Atim's general intentions and circumstances. He never acknowledges that directly, but he shoots all around them, asking, what is your father's name? Atim asks in our opening scene that we replayed, do you really want to know? If Atim were more savvy and maybe a little older, he might more fully recognize that Nasara is aware of this. In an adolescent way, I think Atim knows too, but there's no way he could articulate it at this point. And Atim has another opportunity. He sees Nasara sleeping, and we see his hand shaking with the gun and his face anguished. The question of whether or when this was going to happen, this Chekhovian gun that is hanging around, was it tense for you throughout? Every time it shows up, are you genuinely concerned what is going to happen? I could not envision a world in which he could carry this out. I was concerned that Nasara might find it and use it against him somehow. He's clearly trying to make his life over, but can he truly? We don't know how long he's been at it, and he hasn't been tested to this degree. When that other van arrives that causes Nasara to argue with the owner and threaten them, we see that that violence is never far away. Atim is clearly neither a baker nor an assassin yet. He forgets the yeast, which is, oh my god, a gigantic thing to do. When loaves are thrown back at you from beggars that don't even want them, that is a significant moment. To me, it seemed like we were nearing some kind of a breaking point, though, because Atim is practicing in the mirror against himself, pulling the trigger. He's watching Nasara from a distance, almost like a sniper getting him in his crosshairs, but his hands are shaking so bad and he's looking away while he's miming this. And then, much like he forgot the yeast, he absentmindedly forgets his gun, which Nasara finds and teasingly asks him about. Nasara has to know what this kid's game is by now. He puts it aside, though, and prevails upon him to come to the mosque again, and during that scene, there's another news report on the radio about ongoing tension and retribution, and Nasara turns that off again mid-word. Even though he's hinted at the way that their pasts intersect, there are still clearly moments that Nasara doesn't want to directly confront, which made me think of something else I wanted to ask you. How much do you think of Nasara's repeated invitations to the mosque are rooted in that character being aware of two things? One, the growth and the occasional peace that religion has afforded him, and two, trying to assuage Atim's deadly intentions. Because I can tell you, it doesn't play like self-preservation to me. Nasara is never duplicitous that way. To me, I feel like it's given him solace, and he thinks it might do the same for this young man. They are both, at this point, working to resist this cyclical violence. I guess here's my own interpretation of that, born of my own experience, which is that Anytime anyone says, come to church with me, I assume they're trying to recruit me. 
So I think that's the only thing I thought of. But there's another important inflection in this as well, which was that there were also a lot of atrocities directed at Muslims in the area. So it's potentially even dangerous to go to the mosque. And yet he continues to do it freely in vivid colors. And I think that was important, something I probably can't fully understand not being from the region. Another thing specific to the region that I was wondering about, we see this flirtation between Aisha and Atim. She is clearly much closer to Atim's age than Nasara. It's clearly an arrangement, which is a situation that we are not accustomed to. Much like the ongoing civil war, much like the sectarian violence, it's another significant aspect of the culture we just cannot understand, I don't think. And even though their relationship is tumultuous, we see, at least by the very end, that she clearly deeply cares about Nasara. How easy is it for you as a woman to understand the move, the philosophical, psychological shift from a forced arrangement to a relationship that has developed into love, if stormy? I'm going to disagree with you a bit here, because I see it in the details. I see when she is required to put the headscarf on when she talks about that the arranged marriage was her parents' idea. The smiles that seem to come so easily to her now, I think of the girl that she was before, and then she's going to have this potentially second role of motherhood, or at least a caregiver, forced upon her. She has the child that she's carrying, and then she's taken this young man in simply because she has to, because her husband has said that that's what's going to happen. I don't ever get the sense that she loves him, I get the sense that she has duty. Okay, I see what you mean. Perhaps I phrased it inaccurately. And it's only specifically about a moment at the very end that I'm referring to. Prior to that, I agree. I don't see it. She clearly longs for something else. But there's just simply no question that she would go back to her parents. That's never going to happen. So she's there, and she is living her life. Well, since you mentioned the role of caretaker, I should mention here, Nasara suffers a series of wounds. A cut finger, then he throws his back out, and this forces a team into the role of primary baker, and more importantly, caretaker, while Aisha is away having the baby. Nasara invites a team to live, to provide company during Ramadan, to break the fast together, and here it is clear to me, more than most of the time, a team seems to have forgotten his mission. It's not just the case that it's just below the surface. You said this already, he clearly could have easily finished this. Something else is happening now. And that is most evident when his first day as a solo baker is a success. He takes great pride in it, and retribution seems to be the farthest thing from his mind. He's reveling in this accomplishment, and at least in part, this is a gift that Nasara has given him. He comes up short, though, when he is being literally Nasara's crutch, and a friend of Nasara's stops them, and Nasara takes the giant step of introducing Atim as his son. So even though he's clearly been a father figure to him, and Atim has accepted this, and gotten something gigantic out of it, he is not ready to hear that. He objects so strenuously that he essentially just walks away and leaves Nasara helpless on the street. He's deeply conflicted at this point. The relationship has clearly gone beyond master and apprentice. There's an entirely new level of intimacy demonstrated in this very next scene, in fact, when he applies the ointment to Nasara's back. Nasara, now more than ever, but this entire time has been constantly vulnerable to him. A team goes overboard, gets violent with him, 
and we see a flash in the face of the old Nasara. He is shaking with pain and barely controlled rage. You get the feeling that at one point in his life, he would have killed someone for much less than this. It echoes a little bit the question that I was just asking about Aisha. In this flash, we see just how far you can philosophically shift in a lifetime. This is probably my favorite scene in the whole film, that close-up on Nasara's face. He's still able to get the upper hand, even with his injury, because he can still flip a team. So he's very much in charge. And when he asks Atim to assist him in putting on his belt, he deliberately shows him his closet, which is full of guns of all sorts, and says, you can take whatever you want. And again, that violence has not gone away because the police come to the bakery and are expecting him to come back to the station because of what he has done to this other bakery owner. We don't know exactly what it was. He's broken something. And speaking of those ghosts of the past, they call him by his old name as well. It's the looming specter of reprisal. And it would be incredibly ironic to be undone by something so relatively trivial after all of the atrocities that he's actually committed. Nasara tears up the summons before we can know the full extent of what is going on and what is expected of him. And Atim goes to a bar. We see him get dressed up. It seems like a big deal. A young man out on his own in the city, and everyone's having a good time and dancing and we see that soldier from the bus who is now very drunk and causing all sorts of problems, even brandishing his gun. Another soldier is able to handle him. They go outside, as does Atim, and Atim takes that opportunity when the drunk soldier is on his own to club him repeatedly and take his gun. I love the way this next scene is presented. After he takes this gun and walks out onto a bridge... It is lit so wonderfully. He is looking out into a void, and the way it is shot, there is literally nothing but him. He is in a blank space. He is imagining this revenge, and he is in an abyss. There is just nothing to it. You can't see any of the cityscape. Everything is in complete darkness but him. It's that proverbial point where you are teetering on the precipice, and there is nothing there to save you. He gives a cigarette to another soldier whom we realize is an amputee. And that made me think of people like Nasara carrying these ghosts of the past with them. This is my favorite instance of voiceover. He's practicing with a gun as he watches the soldier hobble away and says to himself and to us, I'm Aboom Abacha's son. Remember him? And he even fires the gun. Finally. I wonder about that. I wonder how much of this is supposed to just be a metaphor. How much of this is just impressionistic? It seems like he couldn't do that with impunity. And you notice no smoke, no recoil from the gun. Is this just in his imagination? I think that's a great point, And that's the sense that I got as well. Almost a dream sequence, but you're awake. He has stayed out all night. And so when he goes back to his new home, he has to knock to be let in, but there's no one there. No one answers. He waits. He even falls asleep. And finally, a car pulls up and it's Nasara and Aisha. We find out that the baby did not survive. And now Atim's position as surrogate heir looms larger than ever. Nasara is so grief stricken that he cannot work. And Aisha achieves whatever small comfort she can with Atim instead. 
how much of their bond do you feel like is a minor rebellion on both of their parts? Is that what this is for you? I think so. And at the same time, very real. They have found people with whom they can feel real comfort. Genuine, kind people who have not hurt scores of others in their past life. He even touches her here, which feels like a huge transgression, if Nasara were to find out. Harkening back to something I mentioned at the beginning, this rudderless feeling that Harun associates with Chad and Africa in general, Nasara specifically says, God has abandoned me. And speaking of a major transgression, he is drunk. So he's broken a huge tenant, especially during Ramadan. Nasara is pleading for even the smallest declaration of love from Atim. Does he give it, do you think? I feel like he does. It does feel that way to me. It has moved over into that realm for me. He certainly doesn't give him the satisfaction or comfort of declaring that he does love him or that he even doesn't hate him. But the action is so much more important. He drives him back home. He doesn't leave him there. He takes care of him. On that note, I've seen this film described as being ambiguous, but I heartily disagree with that. It's elliptical, like I've mentioned a couple of times, certainly, but I don't think it's unclear at all. People are too used to having meaning dictated explicitly to them, so I think they are confusing this stillness for ambiguity. I just made my patented Ron Weasley face when you mentioned that about some people finding this ambiguous. Now, the next day, Nasara's mind is made up. He declares that he wants to adopt Atim formally. To do that, he is going to have to have Atim's parents' agreement, especially his father's. This is the moment that I referred to earlier that I think Aisha's actions could be me conflating duty with love. She mediates this exchange. Without her, this does not happen. And she does so not even fully understanding what is in both men's minds. But in this role of mother and caretaker, she somehow understands that on this level, it is necessary for both of them. And on a much larger metaphorical level, it is absolutely necessary to have any hope for the future of Chad as a republic. I think there's way too much patriarchy involved for me to see that this is coming purely from her place. This is for sure duty for me. This is, I put my husband's and now this young man's needs in front of my own. But if you're Haroon, are you telling us, since the patriarchy has left us in this miserable state, perpetuating this cycle of violence on and on for decades, is he not saying that perhaps we look to the matriarchy for healing? I think he slipped in some really clever things that I can only begin to understand. That's true. There is so much in this. I feel like we could do a six-part arc about this particular film and about Haroon in general. We're only barely going to be able to scratch the surface and introduce the recurring themes that show up in this film and the rest of his filmography, but it is a rich vein, to be sure. Because this could have just been an orphan story, a son's story, a father's story, but we also get a Muslim woman's story as well. So I'm not saying that I can explain it, but I think it's working at many levels. Well, a team's inner conflict has now just become unmanageable, and he has to act. But still, he does not kill. So that act is opting to leave. Haroon's focus on fathers and sons bears rich and complicated fruit in this final section. Atim's presence has given Nasara newfound purpose. Nasara's devotion has diffused Atim's desire for vengeance. 
Nasara is taking Atim back to his village to get this permission, and they stop where the grandfather has said he will be waiting. I don't know about you, but when Nasara said, in response to Atim saying that he's going to leave, I'm going, I'll come with you. I think something inside me exploded at that point, and it did on the subsequent viewing as well. What was it that you were anticipating that made you feel like that? I certainly didn't expect him to say that, and I didn't expect to see that hope on his face. I didn't think that Nasara would be driving himself to his own fate, unknowingly. Well, we find the grandfather there, and he wants Nasara to suffer the same humiliation his son did. He is still blindly adhering to his desire for retribution. They force Nasara to undress, and a team fires into the air. He fakes murdering Nasara, and there is finally mercy and grace. The grandfather asks him, did your hand tremble? No. Then you are a man, my son. And the grandfather gets to continue adhering to his old way, feeling some measure of satisfaction, I assume. But what does that really get you? But Atim, ultimately, has broken from perpetuating the violence. And it's easy to see why. Again, it's not ambiguous. It was never in him to begin with. This was not his mission. This was his grandfather's mission. And he never knew his father, but he knows one now. When we saw this in the theater, I held my breath through these last few moments. And his grandfather's last line that you mentioned has lived with me since the day that we saw it. And that idea of what is courage and what does revenge do to the people upon whom it is visited and upon whom carry it out. That's why I wanted to do this episode. That's what I've been thinking so much about in watching all of these other noir films that are so focused on that act, not the years that come after it. Well, Atim, who is still a child, turns out to be the one who is truly wise. Whether he can even fully comprehend the scope of what he's done right here, or not done in this case, this is where there's hope for Chad in small gestures, in reconciliation, in refusing to participate in the cycle of bloodshed. And an important part of that, I feel like, is Haroon's avoiding the overt, grand politicization of what makes it seem possible. Compare, for instance, how you felt early on about the announcement of amnesty from the Truth and Justice Commission to this small personal act of amnesty. The result of both is that there will ultimately be less suffering, but the larger event feels hypocritical, empty, and unearned, right? That's how it felt to me. That's how it felt to me as well. I definitely didn't think that it would end anything. I felt like it was only going to begin another period of something terrible. But a seed is planted here that feels hopeful. Yes, agreed. When one person decides not to participate in it, how that can affect everything else. And learning that nothing is solved by this revenge. It could not possibly make you feel better a day from now, a month from now, a year from now, if you were the person who had killed Nasara. But I certainly understood that impulse when I hear the first radio announcement. I can only think back to smaller similarities in our culture, the big one for me being the pardon of Richard Nixon. That's an interesting choice, because to me that feels like one of those things, again, on its surface, hypocritical, not useful. But the more I learn about it, the more important it was for unification for healing. Whether he deserved it or not is not the question as to whether or not it was the right thing to do. And the only time I've ever understood any reason as to why anyone would even entertain that was Gerald Ford explaining it himself. 
Well, I'm really glad you chose this one. This was as good or better, actually, as the first time we saw it. Before we get out of here, I wanted to mention specifically the distributor of this film, Art Matin Productions. They are devoted to disseminating films from Africa and the African diaspora and exposing viewers to a really diverse representation of the global black experience. They carry 120 titles or so currently, and they're also responsible for the African Diaspora International Film Festival, which started in New York, and now has satellite versions also in Chicago, Paris, and Washington, D.C. If you have even a passing interest in African film, they are a great resource, and we'll make sure and put links in the show notes. I want to specifically thank, as we have many times before, Austin Film Society. That's how we got to see this, as part of their series on the African diaspora. This made such a huge impact on me. I think we have to specifically also thank Charlie Nafus. This was his baby to put that series together. He was responsible for years and years bringing films of the Middle East and Africa to the attention of Austin filmgoers that might have never gotten on their radar. And I owe him so much. I've seen so many great things because of his programming choices. But this is far and away one of my favorites. And so good news, though, if you don't have the opportunity to see something like this on the big screen wherever you are, I was really delighted by a new series up on Filmstruck right now. And also that some of these great choices are also available for streaming. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Gree Gree, Haroon's 2013 film, I think that that's on Amazon Prime right now. That is, and it's not the only one, which is a minor miracle, especially when you look at Chadian films. There are 14 of them, ever, ever, 10 features, of which Haroon has made six. He is a one-man film industry for the entire republic, and it illustrates how much we take for granted, I think, and how readily available technology is for a lot of us. It must be incredibly hard to work when there are no support services, no infrastructure, no matter how creatively driven you are. On the film prior to Durat, after wrapping on any given day, he had to send those dailies to Paris to be processed, 2,600 miles away, and then wait to hear if it came out okay before he could move on to the next day's shooting. And in the production of this film, they almost had to shut down numerous times because the Civil War was raging and they were in extreme danger. Clearly, to make these films is more than just a labor of love. Haroon feels it is imperative, because otherwise his culture will have no opportunity to be accurately represented on screen. His work is a struggle against what he calls the colonization by images. It's still sort of a self-imposed exile that he lives in France, and he has mentioned he feels guilt about that sometimes. But his choice is to tell the stories or not, so he goes to great lengths and takes great risks to do so. Cinema is memory and history, and you cannot leave it to someone else to make yours. And just to be clear as well, he moved to France, not by choice really, but, I mean, he really had to escape the country. It became his adopted home, however, along with a number of other artists in exile. I want to talk a bit more about his views on this art as well. He talks about how growing up, film was an irrelevance. And you can imagine why, because of what is going on around you. And I found this really fascinating because I think we might tend, or at least I might tend, to think of this kind of an art as a necessary escape during certain very tumultuous times. But not for Haroon. And he talks about feeling this responsibility to not leave his country invisible. And also that he has to be brutally honest when dealing with problems in Africa. 
He said, I laugh when I see African comedies because things are so serious. Do you think we need that in Africa? When we have things like in Mali happening, cinema can't be a luxury. It can't be an art of entertainment. That's a luxury we should leave to others, but not Africans. That is definitely one of the things that appeals to me in all the stuff I've ever read about him, how no-nonsense he is. It sounds pretty grim, but that definitely belies the humor that you do find in his work. He's not making laugh-out-loud comedies, but there are tender moments. But I really admire the fact that never once does he take his eyes off the fact that he's a custodian and a caretaker and a communicator and how important all of those roles are. He certainly doesn't take any of it for granted. And he's one of those rare filmmakers that when you watch his films, you get as close to understanding that as you can from our privileged position. I think of that position as being a Sullivan's Travels position. This idea that, yes, sometimes we just want to laugh and that makes a huge difference to us. And then being shaken by this to know that, no, that is a luxury. We are not at that point yet. In reading about this, and because I mentioned I was so interested in the idea of post-revenge, someone mentioned that a great or very interesting double feature would be this film and Le Fice by the Dardens, which I haven't seen yet, but I was wondering what your recommendation might be for further viewing. First, that's an excellent choice, just in terms of rhythm and intimacy. Haroon and the Dardans would make an excellent pairing. We should do that, don't you think? I can't think of any reason why not to. But my recommendation this time, I'm going to do something that I often like to do when we discuss filmmakers that are underseen, and that is recommend more of their work. In this case, I want to recommend Haroon's film from 2010, A Screaming Man. This one also stars Yusuf Djaro, along with Diak Koma, Haje Fatima Ngawa, and Janeba Kone. It's about a man who was a swimming champion in his youth that now works as a pool attendant at an upscale hotel alongside his son. A shakeup with hotel management results in him being demoted to gatekeeper while his son continues to work as the sole pool attendant. Simultaneously, he finds himself unable to pay his share to support the local rebel forces, and to solve the problems of both this debt and the loss of his job, he arranges to have his son drafted. It's a decision that he immediately regrets, and sick with grief, he works to undo what he has done. This film and Durat are two sides of the same coin, I think. Examining the relationships of fathers and sons against this backdrop of the long-running conflict? The difference in this case would be that the sting is much more immediate here, where Durat looks at the aftermath and gives you more time and room to ponder the long-term ramifications and the echoes of war that affect people's lives down the road, this makes you deal with consequences right away, when there is no time to ponder and action must be taken. You see just how quickly living in these circumstances can cause an otherwise decent and reasonable man to abdicate duty, family, and morality altogether. I highly recommend watching one to inform the other. And what about you? I chose the other film that we watched during that AFS series, and that is La Pirogue from 2012, directed by Moussa Touré. This is a Senegalese film. It's about a group of African men and a woman who leave Senegal in a small boat, which is a pirogue, to cross the Atlantic to Spain, where they believe that better lives and job prospects are certainly waiting for them. 
And I think even more so now, if you've read anything about migrants crossing, you know this is not going to end well. It's a devastating work. I think dry season, Derhat, hit me a bit more than this did, but I certainly don't want to leave this one out, and I hope people get a chance to see it. So once again, that's two great recommendations, A Screaming Man and La Pirogue. And that brings us to the end of episode 77. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. Please come over and check out our new Facebook group. It's been super active and really fun since we kicked it off with the help of our friend Travis a couple of weeks ago. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Brian Sauer, Keith Rich, James Finelon, Chad Engelbert, and the very nice people at the Film Noir Foundation. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. Just about any place you find podcasts, you'll find us there. And I wanted to say a special thanks to James Stobie this time around for leaving us a really wonderful review. We appreciate that. And bonus extra special thanks to Travis Trudell again for sending us a super cool Creature from the Black Lagoon enamel pin that we really love. Thanks, Travis. We really love getting neat treats in the mail. We also have a Patreon. If you have not taken advantage of that, we have bonus episodes up there for everyone who pledges $5 a month or more. You can find all of the perks that are available at patreon.com slash magiclantern. We just put up a roundup of our favorite newspaper noir films, and I am finally getting you to watch The Last of Sheila, so that will be coming. Another big treat that's coming, I will be going to Toronto in a couple of weeks to cover the Toronto True Crime Film Festival. I can't wait for that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 